Hello, and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for those curious about the non-finance aspects or the human side of working in accounting and finance. I'm Susan Nicriazon, and while I believe there is beauty in balancing a set of financial statements, the intricacies that underpin the workings are wondrous. The real beauty for me is in working with people. The intricacies that underpin our workings are wondrous too. And not one particular combination of input or formula will ever generate the same result. Join me and my guests as we place a lens on some of these wondrous intricacies that make us unique. And as we share insights, knowledge and strategies to inspire your life beyond the numbers. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by a fellow Irish person, John Collins. John, you're very welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thanks very much, Susan. Great to be here. So, John, you are currently on a five-month parental leave. Yeah. So, firstly, congratulations on the birth of your second child. But wow, what an incredible work-life benefit from an organisation. Yeah, it's amazing, Susan. And I pinch myself pretty much every morning that I wake up that somebody has allowed me to do this. It's a true gift. And yeah, it's my second daughter, Asana. She's now four months old and I have a three and a half year old, Kaya. But it's hard to put into words, actually, the value that this brings. And it's a bit of a cliche, but I, I feel very blessed. But alas, my time is coming to an end in three short weeks. So back on the laptop here now, Feels like good practice before I get fully back into the swing of things. <laughs> you work for Puka Herbs, and is that something that they've introduced for a number of years, or do you know how it came about? I I don't know when it was introduced, but shared parental leave has been there as a policy for a long time. But it's one of these things where you know everyone who reads it on paper thinks this is a great idea, but still the uptake is really really low. But if you look at it from an employer perspective, the the level of engagement and loyalty and gratitude that it creates is really quite amazing. In a very positive way, I feel a great debt to my colleagues who've who've sort of stepped up, but also the company for giving it, giving me this opportunity. But the benefits also, you know, financially being the FD, I know exactly what the cost of this is, and it it works out quite effective and it's great for retention as well so in the long run from a financial point of view it's worth doing but also from a talent development point of view Susan it's amazing so my head of commercial finance has backfilled me for the past five months and that learning experience that he has got from this is invaluable like I think I'm going to struggle to take back often when I get back but so I think beyond what the individual who goes on the leave gets from it. I think it's a very virtuous thing to do. That's fantastic. John, on your LinkedIn profile, I was struck by something that you have there. And so you say, after 18 years of professional experience across multiple sectors, I have learned the obvious truth. Great people serving a great purpose make great organizations. Yeah. Tell me, tell me about your discovery. Well, well, firstly, it's very worrying for you to say 18 years. I still feel I'm, you know, in my late 20s. But anyway, (laughs) 
think I I remember rewriting my LinkedIn profile, Susan, and I think if everyone is honest, they they mull over that for a long time. And before that, I had what I would call a fairly standard bio, which was all about dynamic and deliberate results focused and all of that. And I, in reading it, I just felt really quite inauthentic about that. And when I reflected back on my career, so I, you know, I, I trained as a chartered accountant. My, I think I mentioned this to you before, my father was an accountant. And I think that's probably the main reason why I became one as well. But I, I went straight from university into accountancy with Deloitte and then straight into another role with Diageo, which ended up being, I, th- I think, an 11 or 12 year stint with them. And I, I think in all of that time, as much as I loved it and I, I had a great professional and personal experience, I never really took the time to think about what did I actually want and what was the ultimate impact of what I was doing beyond what it was giving me in a kind of a selfish way. And when I, when I left Diageo in 2017, and I should have prefaced it by saying all wonderful organizations that I worked for, when I left, uh, I took redundancy during a restructure. I had the, the luxury of time to really reflect on some of those questions, which I'd never really afforded myself the time either. And it coincided with the arrival of my first child. And that, as an event, provoked me to start thinking about what do I want? What am I doing? Where do I want to go? And some of the things that's jumped out in my career to that point, the things that gave me the greatest pleasure was supporting people, like just helping them realize their potential. And then after a few months of figuring out what I wanted to do, I was really fortunate to be approached by an agency for an interview with Pucker Herbs, which, and maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, but they are an organization that, you know, truly have purpose at the heart of what they do and don't try to retrospectively insert a purpose in something that's already there. And it was joining them that brought together all of those thoughts that I think I had been having, but really allowed me to crystallize it. And so that is kind of what is reflected then in my LinkedIn bio, if, if that makes sense. It does, John. Yeah. And you, you took time to reflect, which I think is something that a lot of people perhaps maybe poo-poo think it's not necessary. Did you get help to do um, this or was it something you were able to do for yourself, John? That's, that's a really good question, Susan. I did get a lot of help. My last few years with Diageo, I've been promoted to a certain level, which gave me access to a really great leadership development course. You know, I I would say best in class as far as large corporates, senior leadership training is concerned. And through that, I I was part of a cohort of colleagues, funnily enough, many of whom left at the same time as me. And so I had this great network of people who had very similar experiences to me. So they knew the context in which I, I was coming from. And we're also facing some of these same questions themselves. You know, we've been with this organization for so long and you become quite, uh, I don't know, there's a bit of a bubble in these large organizations. I don't mean that in a bad way. And so we were all breaking free of that and trying to figure it out. Probably two or three individuals in particular who I remember leaning on very, very heavily during those times. I think the other person who features very extensively in all of the big decisions in my life is, is my wife. She's always a great 
council and all, always a good prod as well when that's what you need. But I, you know, I it was an interesting time, Susan, as well, because I, you know, like many other people, I'd never taken time off like that before. And as much as when you look at it on paper, God, I'm going to have three or six months off, that's going to be great. And you have this vision of what that's going to be like. And it's a little bit scary as well when you actually get there because you're so used to operating in a certain gear and it takes a long time to unwind. This is a real privileged thing to say, but it does take a long time to unwind when you don't have to work. But I'm I'm really pleased I took that time, Susan. And I wasn't idle. Like I, I set up a consultancy uh, business. I did some work with my old employer. I did some work with some uh, ex-customers of mine. So it wasn't like I was twiddling my thumbs. I, I was very keen. And I think it's from, I don't know, my upbringing as well. I, I really wanted to make sure that the income was still coming in. But I definitely had a much more capacity to think about what it was I wanted to do. And I think just to finish off on that, Susan, I think the big thing for me was it was the first time that I wanted to and had to create my my own future. Up, up until that point, all the options that I took were sort of there in front of me. It was a bit of a no-brainer to walk through the door. This was the first time I had to, you know, find out where the door was and then decide if I wanted to go through it. So it was a great experience, ultimately. That's fantastic. You hear a lot about people talking about creating opportunities or creating their future. And I, I do think a lot of us tend to go job to job quite easily, uh, especially if you're in a bigger organization. It's quite easy to progress, isn't it? And move around. Yeah. But what what was creating your future like then? Or what was creating the opportunity like? Um, it was really hard, Susan. Um, and I... What I've learned about that time and about that question that you've asked me is I was, all of the choices, and I, I'm talking professionally now, all of the choices I had made up until that point, I think were very extrinsically motivated, right? So it would be what I thought might be the right thing that other people would look at, that's sensible, or in much more basic terms, somebody would come up to me and say, John, here's a great opportunity. Why don't you take it? And I would go, that's a great idea. Yes. And now all, now all of those things, they were great ideas, actually, as, as it turned out. But when you then think about, well, if you strip all those external things away, what other people will think, what other people are telling you, what, what is the voice inside saying? And that was really hard, Susan, because for a long time it wasn't saying anything to me. And I was like, wow. Or maybe I wasn't allowing myself to listen to that voice. So like, what does John, the individual, want to do? And when that question has been answered for you for you know such a long, long time, that's really hard. But, but I do know that ultimately... That is, you know, listening, understanding what motivates you intrinsically is really the key to, oh, there's a bit out there, but I think that's the key to happiness, full stop, you know. Mm. And, and it took a long time. And I'm still learning that, by the way, Susan. Like, I hope your next question isn't going to be, what are your intrinsic motivators? But so, you know, I, I think it's a, an ongoing thing, but that was a real pivotal moment for me. And if I think about it even more, Ironically, it was extrinsic factors that led me to that because it was me ultimately 
leaving Diageo through a restructure. Like, I don't know when I would have taken control of that for myself, if I ever would have, if I'm being really honest. And so that's another interesting thing when you look at losing your job. I always say to people that this is going to open up opportunities for you that you never knew existed. And I mean that genuinely because I've lived it myself. That's absolutely, that's a brilliant answer. And I, I'll spare you, John. I won't ask you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but for myself, for example, I left every job without another job to go to. And yeah. there is something really exhilarating and frightening often. Yeah. But it does help you work out what you want and learning what your intrinsic motivators are when they're not there. That's yeah. when you really recognize, oops, there's something not quite right here, I think, again. Yeah. And, and also, Susan, in the case of me, I, I don't think I ever allowed intrinsic things. No, that's not strictly true, but I think it takes a lot of work to turn up the volume on those things. I think they're in there. I think you definitely need help to bring them out. But the more you can do to amplify it, I think the, the better it is. We weren't brought up that way, John. You know, it wasn't how school was, and it certainly wasn't how Deloitte was either. <laughs> no, very true, very true. Even That's though Deloitte was great, class. and I wouldn't, I wouldn't swap it for anything, but you were brought up to be productive. Very true. It seems, God, it's, it's such a long time ago now, but it was, what, 2002 when I joined Deloitte, and I remember doing the milk round before. And, but, you know, you're right, Susan, in that you're kind of churned through the machine and they get their pound of flesh out of the three and a half years. But on the flip side, you get an awful lot too. And that's another thing that I've learned. It's a contract that you enter with the organization. They will get a lot from you. You need to make sure that you get a lot from them. But also what I learned when I left Diageo as well was the importance of maintaining perspective, right? Because that had been my life for such a long time. And it's very easy for your sense of self-worth to become very much linked to the job that you do. And if you're with a large organization, at the flick of a switch, there could be something that happens, which means that you part ways. And if you have invested a lot of your own identity with that organization, that departure can be a really difficult thing. And so you take the rough and the smooth, but yeah, that, that was another big learning for me. Mm. With Diageo, now you started out in Ireland with them, but you moved around, didn't you, John? Yeah, I did. I, I look at my qualification as literally a passport. I went on a succumbent to Diageo back in 2006, and I knew at that time that staying in practice was was not for me I, I i really enjoyed the challenge of going into a client and trying to win them over i love that aspect of it but it, it, it the technical nature of it really wasn't for me and so i went on this comment to diageo and was was really struck by the culture and the environment that was tangible and that was manifest in everyone i met it was something that resonated very strongly with me and so I let it be known to them at the end of the succumbent that, look, if there's any opportunity, I'd love to join. And luckily enough, there was. So I'm a walking stereotype, Susan, Irish, red hair, works for Guinness. And that started an 11-year career, which was so rewarding. I mean, for all the things I said before, I have no regrets either. I did two years in Ireland working in the local sales and marketing 
the Irish business, basically, not necessarily the production or the manufacture of Guinness. And then I moved to the global head office in London. And that was a really interesting time for me because I went from a part of the Diageo organization, which still had a really strong Guinness culture, like naturally here at the home of Guinness, to move then to the center of the PLC gave me a very global perspective, like on the organization, but literally it gave me a global perspective because I spent a lot of time in the Asia Pacific region during that time. I was doing a global compliance role. And that was really interesting for my understanding of how a global business works. And then once I had realized that, wow, I can use this opportunity to to literally leave and move to another country and have all of that personal experience, I then said, right, I really want to utilize this. And I, I let it be known that, look, I'll go wherever you want. Because going back to that intrinsic, extrinsic, one of the intrinsic things I knew was I, I wanted to really savor an experience as broad an array of opportunities as I could. I, I remember saying to my line manager once that I want to physically step outside of my comfort zone. And so I got what I wanted, Susan. I ended up getting on a plane in the summer of 2010 to Tanzania with my girlfriend, who's now my wife. Diageo were in the process of buying business there. And I, I just said, look, I, that's me. I, I send, send me there. And that was amazing. That was the most remarkable two and a half years of our lives. It's not a day goes by, actually. I don't really think of our time in Africa we were buying a new business and it didn't matter what your title was. Everyone just had to roll up their sleeves and whatever needed to be done would be done. And that's when I, I started to realize that I was much more of a generalist than a specialist, which can be a little challenging when you are a chartered accountant, but that was great. Um, learned a lot about myself, learned a lot about what I wanted from my career from that point onwards. And so we returned to the UK in 2012. Diageo came from Grand Metropolitan and Guinness merging back in the 90s. And a part of the, the Grand Met organization was a, a wine merchant called Justerunian Brooks, 260 years old, mm. always very autonomous and outside of the both the Grand Met structure and then the Diageo structure. And I remember reading about the role profile. It was finance and operations director, but it felt to me like a role that had a huge amount of breadth. So it was, you know, supply chain, strategy, statutory, management, you know, whereas the other positions, the more traditional route that I had in front of me was some roles with a huge amount of depth, but not much breadth. And so I joined Justerini's and it was absolutely fantastic, Susan. The heritage that they had, uh, and that was the first time I'd really been exposed to people who truly, they were truly passionate. Like if you could open their arms, it would be red wine that would flow of, you know, blood. And I, I learned, and again, it was probably looking back on it now, I learned that I really enjoyed surrounded by people who are that passionate about what they do. I kind of soak it up like a sponge. I mean, I knew nothing about red wine. I still know nothing about red wine, except the wines that I like, I can't afford. But it was fantastic. And from a professional point of view, like the experience I accrued over that time would have taken me at least twice the time if I had stayed on the more conventional routes. I was really enjoying that. And I, my career also had been defined by probably two year stints and really 
in two year stints, what happens is you never really get to lap your own performance. And I was, I was always a bit wary of that. And just when I was getting settled and thinking, God, I, I'm very happy here and I can see a very fulfilling path for me for you know a number of years. I was approached then by the head of the Diageo UK business who just Arini's, we functionally reported into them. And he approached me to say he was pulling together a new leadership team and he had a particular role in mind for me, which was a field sales director for the UK. And I sort of said to him, do you know the job that I do? Like I'm the finance person. I'm not the salesperson. I've never sold anything in my life. And he said, look, I, yes, I know that, but there's a certain job that needs to be done here. And I, I'd like you to, to consider yourself for it. And I, when opportunities like that come along, albeit, you know, extrinsically brought to me, I, I, I was really scared by it because for the reasons I just said, no functional experience on that side. But I also knew that whatever would happen, the worst case scenario is I would come away with some really amazing experience. And so I, I reluctantly, I must say, left Just Arenies and they're still very dear to me, that organization. I stay very close to them. And I joined the, the Diageo UK business. I took on a team of 220 people and was responsible for our field sales operations over a 600 million pound business. And it was just ridiculous. <laughs> um, and I went on the, I think the steepest learning curve that I've ever been on. I learned some really important things about myself. I really went in on myself during that time. Those voices, everyone talks about imposter syndrome, that, you know, you've got the rational voice on one head saying, John, you've got to back yourself. Other people are backing you. You're there for a reason. And then that other voice, which you know is irrational, but you cannot shut it up. And it was like, what are you doing here? You're going to get the tap on the shoulder. Very, very quickly. And, but Susan, I know that one. Yeah, but, but the interesting thing is, if that really gets out of control, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You know, you can become so paralyzed by it that actually you, you end up not doing a very good job at all. And I, I remember a, a chat with my boss four or five months in. I remember him saying to me, John, look, you have to find a way to get over that, right? Because I did not bring you in here because of this amazing selling, you know, because you're a sales you know, animal. I brought you in here because that part of the business and indeed the whole business needs a complete refresh. It needs a new strategy. It needs fresh leadership. We need to inject life into what was a bit of a super tanker for the last 20 years. It was very hard to eke out any sort of significant growth. And that gave me the kick in the backside that I think I needed. And so uh, then after that, it was still a massive challenge, but I really enjoyed the rest of my time there. And then a lot large organizations like Diageo, Susan, you can set your watch by the restructures. And uh, in fact, I was the architect of a part of this one. And I, I found myself in a very interesting situation of writing myself out of my own job. And I, I ended up joining our travel retail business and uh, I stayed on the commercial route. So I became Europe commercial director for our travel retail business. And that was, again, another really, really steep learning curve. And then another six months later, there was another restructure. And so at that point, Susan, my wife and I had moved to the Southwest. My daughter had just been born. And I, I realized that at that stage, you have to consciously make a choice, I think, that 
we as a family are going to put this career at the center of the decisions that we're going to make and then prioritize all other things around that, like where we're going to live, etc. And I think I got to that point where I realized I wasn't willing to do that. And so I left and, and sort of brings us back to where our conversation started, Susan. But, but an amazing 11 years, I still love Diageo and I'm eternally grateful to the people in there who afforded me those amazing opportunities and still keep an eye on the share price because I have a couple of shares still in there for the retirement. <laughs> Good to hear from wise man. There's so much to pick up on there, but I think let's move along actually yeah. to, to where you are now, because you went from this large drinks industry to Pocah, yeah, another drinks company. So tea in the main. Yeah, well, definitely liquid, yes, but very different liquid, obviously. My connection to Pocky is really interesting. So uh, I mentioned that my, my first daughter was born in 2017. My wife and I, like, like many, many couples, really found it very difficult to conceive. And we went on a very, very difficult journey, let's put it that way, which was one of the motivators for us moving to the Southwest because we knew... That journey we went on, I won't go get into too many details, but that journey really put things into perspective for us about, look, life is very short. And if you know there's something that's important to you, don't delay on it. And moving to the Southwest, back closer to Michelle's family, and I'm a, very much a family man as well. And having left Ireland and left my family, my wife's family are my family as well. So it was really important for us to get out there. We moved, that's why we moved. And then we, we, we went to see a herbal practitioner in Bath, who my wife had heard about, a guy called Sebastian Pohl, who had a, an amazing reputation in the field of herbal medicine. And he helped, you know, couples conceive as well. So we went to see him and, you know, story short, three or four months later, Michelle was pregnant with Kaya. So I, I remember sending him an email the day after Kaya was born, and I, I still have it. It was just to say that, you know, what, what he had done for us, I, I struggled to articulate it into words, and it was something that I could never repay. And then the mad thing was, after I'd left Diageo, and I was doing my consulting and sorting out all those big questions that we talked about earlier, I get a phone call from an agent in Bristol saying, there's this herbal tea company that are looking for an interim finance director. And I said, is it Puckett? Because after I had met Sebastian, I realized he had founded this tea company, which I had been drinking for the last five or six years. And I, having met Sebastian, I also knew what he stood for. And I learned a lot more about Puckett. And I, it never even occurred to me to approach them. And lo and behold, this phone call comes through. So I felt, Susan, that... Somebody was trying to tell me something here. And so I interviewed, I got the role. Turns out that the FD who went, he was actually going on shared parental leave as well. He decided not to return. And so, and that was it. And that was back in April, 2018. And so Pucka has been, you going back to the LinkedIn thing that we talked about at the very beginning, that has been a real, I think, awakening for me actually in terms of, that I have a responsibility to have a positive impact in some way or another. And finance people often struggle to articulate what that means in the professional sense. 
how can I do that or whatever? And in Paca, that was never even a, you know, wasn't even a debate. Like when you're part of that organization, that is what the organization is. It's not this thing that you elect to engage in or not. And I, that was really very empowering for me. And I, I realized that actually there's nothing to stop me in my role. And in fact, if anything, I've got probably a bigger opportunity in my role to grow the impact of Pucka and then also to reflect back on me as an individual and say, well, beyond just my, my professional role, I, I can do more. And it was Pucka that inspired me to then look into the voluntary sector. And I interviewed to become a board member of Friends of the Earth. And I joined them in March of last year. It's amazing. Once you get a taste of it and once you realize that, you know what, in my own little way, I can, I, I can at least try to have an impact. It, it's a really rewarding thing, you know? Oh, that's an amazing story. Like really, really amazing how you've intertwined with Pucka and how this guy, Sebastian's had the positive impact on your life and now you're helping them have more of a positive impact on the world. Yeah. Wow, yeah. that's quite a story, John. So Pucka, they're a, a beacon, I suppose, for sustainable and ethical business yeah. And can we really have it all? <laughs> can we do the people, purpose, planet and profit? And can they sit together, John? Yes, Susan, is the answer, in my own opinion, by the way. No, that's not a definitive yes. Um, that's but okay. <laughs> it's, it's, very, it's very easy to underestimate what that actually takes. Every business today will talk about their purpose, right? And they'll talk about their sustainability agenda and all the good things they are doing. And that generally is great, right? Because wind the clock back even five years and that wasn't the case. And even, even Diageo, when I, I look at some of the things they're doing in their supply chain, this is like game-changing stuff in terms of water uses and stuff. And that wasn't really on the agenda five to 10 years ago. But what, what it all boils down to is when decisions are being made about the deployment of resource and whatever that resource is, what are the, the determining factors in making those decisions? And I think organizations have a long way to go before they can genuinely say, we consider all of the impact that we have and not just the financial bottom line. And to get to that point where, where businesses and organizations are truly making decisions with that lens, we have a long way to go. But when you get to that point, that's when you hit the jackpot. It's really hard, particularly when you have stakeholders, shareholders, etc. But this is why I also feel, Susan, that business is the key to this, right? Because business and commerce and consumption is really one of the things that's at the heart of the situation that we're in and that's not going to stop right as much as some people would like it to it's not right so you can either bemoan that on the outside or you can be part of the solution on the inside and so so that's a long way of answering your question but uh, Susan yes I do believe we can do it but man it's it's hard work Oh, well, it's not a long way either, because I think there's there were so many points in there that are important, John. And 
it is very easy to think, yes, we can just flip a switch and, and kind of prioritize people even, and then the planet and not just profit. But it is that lens you're talking about. And that involves bringing everyone in the business and the stakeholders together. Yeah, no, totally, totally. But And, and I also think, Susan, on that, it, it is easier now because you ask potential candidates to, who are joining your organization, what, what are their intrinsic motivations? You know, and 80, 90% of the time they will say, I want to be part of an organization that is making a positive difference in the world. And that's a genuine thing. That's not a soundbite that they say, I think they want me to say this because I'm in the interview. I do think that the the new generation, I don't even like saying new generation because it says I'm not part of that. And that is the truth that I have to accept. But the, the, the new generation coming through for very real reasons, this is front and center of their concern. And so businesses, it's, it's a necessity actually now because I, I think organizations that just continue to grow for the sake of growth or whose sole purpose is to just generate profit, I think the runway for those organizations is getting shorter and shorter, you know? I, I hope so, John, I really do. And I hope that the longer view comes into play more and more and that the short-termism focus that a lot of organizations have tied around bonuses or whatever it might be starts to get disrupted because I think that's then when, if you can shift that, you can shift yeah. to a longer-term perspective. And it sounds to me like with an organization like Pokha that allows somebody like you parent or all staff parental leave and everything like you said at the beginning the loyalty is there then to continue working for them and you have a long-term view oh for sure Susan and like the I would say that the things like parental leave and the the perks if you like are important right but they're not the fundamental positive thing about the organization right that is great and i and i think it's a characteristic of a very progressive organization that values its people but the 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 most satisfying and motivating thing about an organization like pucka is the genuine feeling that we are making decisions for the right reasons and we are taking into account all of those factors when big decisions are being made. Like we genuinely are. We're not just saying we are, and we're not just parking it in the sustainability team who sit over there and create a nice report at the end of the year. It's right at the heart and center. And from a finance point of view, I remember I went to a conference a couple of years ago around net impact. And this was, you know, how do you, in, in the way, you know, the great thing about finance is there is a common, global, universally understood language for the numbers, right? And there is an established infrastructure behind that in the form of debit and credit, annual accounts, audits, etc. you know, ratio, all of that stuff, right? And whether it's Pucca or Diageo or whoever, the challenge we have on the non-financial measures is there's no common language right and I, I do think we'll get there and I, I actually think the finance authorities have a massive role to play to evolve the financial language that we all understand 
into a much more holistic language of, of performance. Uh, I, uh, I went to that conference and I came back into Pukka with, I have to say, one of the members of my team who is just, you know, he lives and breathes this stuff. We were like, how, we have got a massive, we, the finance team, have got a huge role to play to bring this language into Pukka. And that is really hard, Susan, right? And anything worth doing is, is obviously difficult. Um, and trying to define that language. I, I would say to any finance people listening to this podcast that that is an area where you can have a big impact. How can you bring a common authoritative language and measurements to what we are trying to do? How do you take that purpose that every organization has and how do you turn that into some tangible input metric, output metric, and more importantly, impact metrics, which are the hardest of all, by the way, that can galvanize and bring the organization around and then have other people from the outside looking in going, well, that's that's great what they're doing. I think we're going to try and do something similar. Absolutely. And even if you're not in finance listening to this podcast, and this is something that's dear to you, then sit with the finance team and actually encourage them to do this. Because Definitely. Because it is within their capabilities. Yeah, it totally. And I, I think it will actually tap into a heretofore, you know. Revolution. You would definitely, right? Because I, I, I always found in finance, a lot of us are really frustrated, you know, like, you know. I, Just the numbers, people. Yeah, yeah. And like, because everyone talks about here's the goals for the year and you're just there. Well, OK, how can how can I do something about that? And that, that is a great way to do it. Like, my goodness, it is an amazing way to do it. To bring the gravitas and the authority that the finance community have to that, to this so important part of, of business today and business going forward is a very rewarding thing to do. Mm. Brilliant. Well, that's a call to action, I think, to anyone listening to this program Absolutely. today. And I know Puka was bought by Unilever and is now being sold again. So... Potentially. Oh, potentially. Okay. Yeah. One of the things that was interesting that you said was sustainability is very much at the heart of every single decision you made as Pukka. But did the culture of Pukka and all of that change with Unilever buying you? Well, and I think it's important a little bit of context at the beginning, Susan, as well, is the motivation for the founders of Pucka to, to actually sell the business ultimately to Unilever is, we, at Pucka, we always talk about the positive impact that we have and the, the sort of um, circles of benevolence. What we're trying to crack is this, can growth be good, right? And we're pretty convinced that because of our 100% or certification, our supply chain, the sustainability of our packaging, the efficacy of our products, not just our tea, but our supplements. All of those things actually have a, 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 a positive impact. If we grow the business, that means we need more tons of organic agriculture to be produced, which means that will replace conventional agriculture, which means and many, many great things because conventional agriculture is really at the heart of a lot of the, the existential threats that we face today. And so what the founders said was, we are reaching a point where 
our ability to continue to grow that impact is we can't take this any further. And they spent a lot of time looking at what is the right way forward to not compromise on that, but to continue the, the good growth, if you like. And Unilever, as far as the global consumer goods companies stand, are head and shoulders. Obviously, I have a bias here, but they are head and shoulders. They are. Peers yeah. in terms of them recognizing their responsibility, but also recognizing my God, if Unilever do things in a better way, that genuinely has a massive impact, whether it's plastic, pollution, the nutrition in their food and refreshment, et cetera. And so there was a, there was a great fit there. Inevitably, becoming part of an organization like that brings a huge amount of change, Susan, right? Because the parameters in which they operate, the risk appetite they have from a reputational point of view or financial point of view is slightly different, et cetera. But what they also recognize is when they acquire a business like Pucka, the, the, they use the, the term a speedboat, right? They recognize why they bought them, but they also recognize that we really don't want to slow these guys down. When you try to integrate a small, nimble, agile entrepreneurial organization into a behemoth like Unilever, there is an inevitability that that will slow down. And so they are really tuned into the necessity to avoid that. And so we have enjoyed a huge amount of autonomy. And what all the effort has been in the last three years since the acquisition is finding the sweet spot of leveraging the scale, which is what we need to do, but also maintaining that speedboat nature. And I have to say, I commend Unilever for how they've done that. It's been a great success. I mean, if you look at our growth and how, how we have really managed to leverage the, the scale of Unilever, it's been wonderful. But the, I think the most rewarding thing actually about the acquisition has been Unilever's eagerness to learn from us, to take our best practice and to be really open to the challenge that we bring. That's been great. And some of the things that we've managed to influence, and this goes back to you know, what we were talking about earlier about, are you better off being on the outside or on the inside, you know? And I, I think in this instance, Unilever have announced some things around their commitment to the climate in the last three or four months, which are really the, the audacity of them is, I mean, it's what's needed, but it's very inspiring. So I think there's a great symbiosis, actually. I won't lie, there have been, you know, there's been some real challenges as well. I think it would be naive to say otherwise. But on the whole, it's been great. And what's happening now, I think you said, you know, there's, there's another chapter to it. Unilever's tea business, which is, which is two billion pounds. If you look at it on its own, it's the largest tea organization in the world. Unilever have announced that they are going to separate that business from the rest of Unilever. What will ultimately happen, Susan? We don't know. But the rationale for that is that from an economic point of view, when Unilever looks at its tea business versus all the other categories, uh, it will always lose out in a business case, right? Because the margin might be dilutive to say their beauty and personal care, et cetera, et cetera. And so rather than continue this tea sort of losing out, 
Uh, he believed that what is better off, we need to separate this out and, and let it stand on its own two feet. Because there, Susan, there is an amazing business there. And if you look at from a societal impact, like Unilever have these tea estates in Africa, whereby you've got thousands and thousands of employees, entire families, hospitals on site, hydroelectric power. And if, if you look at the environmental impact of tea, there's a great opportunity for that to become even more circular. I've been through this process many times before. I'm, so for me, I, I see a lot of the benefits and I'm very interested to see where, where it ends up. Brilliant. Well, good luck with all of that because Thank you. it might be disruptive, but like you say, that's yes. important. Yeah, I, I believe that. I so you're trailblazing. Well, yeah, I mean, we like to think so. And, you know, for Pocket, we are now a bigger fish in a smaller pond, basically, within tea. And the tea community, everyone I've met believes very passionately in what we do. And tea, like you look at the coronavirus in lockdown, making a cup of tea, right? It's, it's, it's become such an important thing, right? And... Um, you know, and we're at home so we can choose our own. Well, well exactly. And I, I think that's a great place to be. I'm really proud to be part of not just Pucka, but the wider tea organisation. I really am. Brilliant. Well, John, that's been such a, an interesting conversation and very honest and open. So thank you very much for all of that. And also very uplifting. It's it's going to be one of the first podcasts that go out in, in 2021. And I think it's a great start to, great. <laughs> to a year that hasn't gotten off to the best start. No, no, no. Well, Susan, thank you. It's a pleasure. And any opportunity to, I know your audience goes beyond, you know, just the finance community, but I think to be a finance professional in 2021 is very, very different to what it was in 2001. And uh, it's a, it's a great place to be. So no, it, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. And John, if anybody wants to connect with you at all. Oh, please. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, hit me up. I'd be delighted to connect. Going back to the intrinsic things. One of the things I've learned in the last few years is one of the things that, mo that genuinely motivates me is the opportunity to help other people. And if I can do that, even in a tiny way, I, I, I jump at the opportunity at every chance. So yeah, please, if anyone wants to hit me up on LinkedIn, I'm not expecting an avalanche, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> Careful what you wish for anyway. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, John, and have a, have a great day. Great, Susan. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed our exploration of life beyond the numbers, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with others who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers.